But we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Uh, I'm going to divert a little bit. I don't do this really ever that I know of, but I want to just take a week from the study that we're in. I want to stop it for a moment, and I just want to talk about baptism tonight because we do have a baptism event coming up next Saturday, and it's a big deal for the church. It's a big deal for those who have made the decision to be baptized. And so, as I thought about what to teach on this week, I did have a conviction or I felt inspired that we ought to pause and just take this little side road. And this sermon tonight isn't just for those who are getting baptized on Saturday, although it is for those people because I want to be clear what it is that they're signing up for and they're doing. And it's not just a plea to those who haven't made the decision yet to be baptized, although you know, if you haven't made that decision, tonight is definitely for you. But the message is also for all of us who have been baptized, that we kind of reflect back and we meditate upon our baptism. We remember that commitment that we made. And so tonight's message is for all of us listening here in person or listening out there online. In Luke chapter 15, though, if we stay within the gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a story. And Scott's actually going to preach on this story in a couple of weeks, so I won't give too many spoilers. But it's about a single lost sheep. It basically goes, it's a parable, if a man lost a hundred sheep and one of those sheep gets lost, won't they seek out the one? Won't they leave behind the 99 to find the one? That's kind of how the parable goes. And it's about Jesus chasing after that one lost sheep. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful illustration of the gospel. But as I thought about that this week, if a church has a hundred sheep and one of them is lost, won't they take a week to seek out the one? Won't we pause and take the time to seek the one? And so perhaps there is one here tonight that has been considering accepting Jesus, and they haven't done that yet. Perhaps there is one here tonight that's been considering baptism, and they haven't made that their commitment yet. When we helped start Refuge, four and a half, it's coming up on five years ago, Tom Stanick and his wife were there. He's president of the board, if y'all didn't know that, but they were there right in the beginning. And I remember we talked about this countless times. If by doing this, by starting a church of giving up our dollars and giving up our resources and sacrificing our time, if by doing this, God used us to save one person, it's all worth it. I meant that when I said that in 2016. I mean that just as much today in 2021. And I am thankful that God has saved many souls through the resources and investments everyone has made in this body of Christ. So it's been more than one, but we would have done it for that one lost sheep. Jesus continues in Luke 15, verse 5, talking about that sheep. He says, and when he finds that one lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And so I want to make sure I invite everybody next Saturday because when we have a baptism, it's for everybody, not just the person being baptized, but all of us as a church to come together and rejoice, as Jesus says. Baptism, I think, ought to be a party. Because you got the Father, you got the Son, you got the Holy Spirit, they're all present. You got the angels in heaven. I don't know if you know this, when you're baptized, angels in heaven rejoicing. And so when someone comes out of the water of baptism, we ought to celebrate like our team just won whatever sporting event you like, right? That we ought to be screaming and yelling, and I hope we do that next Saturday as each person is baptized. This week I could make the sermon really short, and some of you are wishing I would do that right now. 
Here it would be, baptism. God asks us to do it, so do it. God bless. Love you all. (laughs) See you next week. It really is that simple. God asks us to do it, so do it. Yet we could fill this room a hundred times over with the amount of books that have been written on all the finer points of baptism. We overcomplicate it. We make it things that it's not. We debate with each other. We split churches. It's a great tactic of Satan's. Refuge is a non-denominational church. That means within this church, many of us have come from various different backgrounds. And if you're like me, and this is the teaching part of the sermon, I guess, if you're like me, maybe you're curious what other denominations do believe about baptism. And so those in the room who grew up Catholic or, or any Orthodox type church, you were likely baptized as a baby meaning your parents made the decision for you to be baptized. And I think it's called a christening in the Catholic Church. You're sprinkled with water. You're given a new name. You're given godparents, the whole Godfather movie. It's all crazy, all these mafia guys, and they're, they're christening these babies. It's like, eh, I don't know about that. That's the Catholic Church. If you grew up Baptist, and I know we have a lot of current or ex-Baptist, whatever you want to call it, recovering Baptists in the room. <laughs> and there's some hands going up. The Baptist names comes from their view on baptism. Initially, it was a believer's baptism, meaning as an adult or as a grown child, you made the choice to be baptized. And when you were baptized, it was by immersion. You got dunked under the water and came up. And so they made baptism a personal choice, an outward reflection of an inward decision is probably how you heard it if you grew up in that church. Now, some of us here tonight, myself included, our prior church was a church of Christ, or you'll hear them called a Christian church, a restored church. And if you grew up in that church, it is immersion, it is a believer's baptism, but they actually tie baptism and salvation together really close. And it depends on the person that you ask, but many in that faith would say, you're not saved until you're baptized. That's the church of Christ. I had to ask about the Methodist church this week, because I'm like, these guys are confusing. They do a little bit of everything. Immersion is okay. Sprinkling is okay. Pouring is okay. There's a difference between sprinkling and pouring. It's connected to salvation in a degree, but it's contingent, which I like this, upon repentance and a personal acceptance of Christ. And if it's a child, it's the family's acceptance of Christ. Presbyterians are about the same. It's all the above. Babies are adults. Pentecostals, charismatic, assembly of God type churches, you need that baptism, but you also need a second baptism to make it official. They call it a baptism by fire. So it's usually speaking in tongues or healing somebody. That's a baptism by fire. That's, that's their view on things. And then last but not least, we've got the Quakers and the Salvation Army. Interestingly, and I didn't know this until this week, neither of those two actually practice baptism. Salvation Army says it's fine if you want to practice baptism. We just don't practice it as a church because we think many churches have turned baptism into a work. And all we need is God's grace for salvation. Some validity to that statement, I believe. So I don't know if you found that interesting. The last time I preached on baptism, which was two years ago, and I'll do it every couple of years, I came up here and I had this huge bandage on my thumb. I don't know if anybody remembers that that was here. We've, we've rotated a lot since then. The week before, I was cooking a big steak dinner for my family. It was going to be a special night. Got big fillets and big New York strips, which is what I like. We were going to make big, nice salads. I'm not a salad eater, but I know how to make a good salad. And the best way is to slice your carrots and vegetables using a mandolin because they're just perfectly sliced and they're the right thickness. And so I get out the mandolin. If you know what that is, it's just a slicer with a big razor blade on it. 
And Presley's like, hey, I'll do it. And I'm like, no, Presley, this is for adults because it's pretty dangerous. And so I'm showing her how to do it, though, and just zipping through it. And lo and behold, I cut off the tip of my thumb. It hurt. And there was lots of blood. Apparently, you have a lot of capillaries in your thumb tip. And so it's bleeding everywhere. I'm missing a part of my thumb. I run to the bathroom because I know it's freaking everybody out. It's squirting and nasty. And I'm like, Karen, help me out. Bring me something to stop this. Karen is not good with trauma. She brought me an ankle brace. (laughs) I debated. I actually texted my doctor using my fingers, not my thumbs, that night and asked him, do I need to have this stitched on? I found it in the salad and pulled it out and said, (laughs) no, that's not true. Emery thought it was in the salad and refused to eat the salad that night because she was convinced my thumb was in it. But I texted my doctor. I said, I cut off the tip of my thumb. He says, is it past the nail? I said, no. He said, no, you don't need to get uh, sewed back on. It should regenerate. It should grow back. Now, we're not lizards. You know, we can't replace an arm if it gets cut off. But if, as humans, we cut off the tip of our thumb, it will regenerate and grow back. And I'm proud to say, two years later, I can play the guitar and hold a pick, and most of my thumb has grown back. Regeneration. For us Christians, it's not just regrowing a part of our body. Christian regeneration is a complete rebirth. We're born again. We move from death to life. We're made completely new. And so before we get too deep into this sermon tonight, let me just be really clear. Our choice to be baptized, and baptism itself does not regenerate our lives. We are made new by the blood of Jesus through the power of the Spirit period. Just like a baby who's born gets no credit for being born, we get no credit for our rebirth. It's purely a work of the triune God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. And those works include baptism so that no one may boast. So maybe you're sitting here tonight, you've never been baptized, and you're saying, well, cool, Brian, that means baptism isn't really necessary. So good, in the sermon right there. No, baptism does not save. But if we're not obedient in this most basic, simple command of God, have we really placed our faith in God's gift of grace in the first place? Ephesians verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus, this is the verse that just followed what I said, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. As a Christian, God is going to lay many good works before you. He's going to give you opportunities to express your faith through obedience. It could be giving. You give money to your church. That's an expression of faith and obedience. It might be serving in children's ministry. They need help back there. We're turning things over and we're revamping things. They could use some volunteers in children's ministry, and maybe God is laying that on your heart. Maybe it's praying for a friend, and that's the obedience. God is saying, hey, you need to go pray for that person, or maybe it's simply loving your neighbor, or maybe it's turning from a sin. There's going to be many acts of obedience that God is going to call you to. But the very first obedience, the very first work is baptism. It doesn't save us. It doesn't regenerate us, but our obedience is evidence of being saved. There's an old saying in the church that I came from, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the divine. 
I always think it's funny. They say no creed but Christ and then write a creed. But <laughs> it's no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And so tonight, no matter what denomination you came from or if you came from church not at all and don't know anything about baptism, I want you to take it all and just sit it aside, if you would. Sit aside what your tradition said. Sit aside what your creed said. Sit aside what your Aunt Judy says. And together, let's just explore what the Bible has to say and doesn't have to say about baptism. We are a church that loves the Bible, and so tonight, no different than any other week, even though I'm taking a night off, we're going to talk and use a lot of the Bible. So first of all, I think four or five weeks ago, we talked about the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. If you want to go hear that message, it's available online on the new updated website. But a few things we learned from the baptism of Jesus. Number one is that Jesus modeled baptism. He did it because God said do it, and so in obedience to God, Jesus was baptized. Jesus identified through us sinners through baptism. Even though Christ had never sinned, he identified with sinners through baptism, pointing forward to the day he would identify with sinners by undergoing our death. And last but not least, I mentioned this earlier, at that baptism and at every baptism is present the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all present and they're all active in our baptisms. Stay with the Gospel of Luke. We'll fast forward to uh, chapter 7, verse 29. It says, when they heard this, what I'm talking about here, all the people, even the tax collectors, that's like the worst of worst sinners. It says, even the tax collectors agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. And so these people are saying, God said be baptized, so let's be baptized. God's way is right. But it says, but the Pharisees and the experts in religion rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. See, the religious people, the, the experts in the law, they said, baptism, well, that's too easy because we got this list of stuff that you need to do. And once you believe all the right things and once you behave all the right ways, well, then maybe we can talk about you going to have a swim in those waters. And so Jesus responds to them and says, to what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? He says, they are like children playing a game. That generation, our generation, not much has changed. We like to play games. That word that I used earlier, regeneration, we like to play a game. Well, well, when does regeneration occur? Is it when you accept Jesus? Is it when I'm baptized? Is it when I go into the water? Is it when I come out of the water? I don't know. The Bible's not very clear to me. I just know the two are closely linked together and that God said so, so do it. Or maybe we play that game. What happens If I intend to be baptized, killed on the way. I mean, I meant to do it. Does that mean I'm good? Or what if I live in a place with no water as if such a place exists? We ask these kind of childish games. Or we continue those games. I'm not not ready yet. I'll get baptized, but I got some stuff I want to take care of. If you've given your life to Jesus, you're ready for baptism. Or maybe you say, I'm scared of the water. I have some people in my family, and they're scared of the water. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to bet money that no one has ever drowned from baptism. (laughs) Chuck, what did you tell me today? You hold them under the water until Satan comes out of them or something. (laughs) Chuck baptizes you, maybe you might have some issues. (laughs) Or maybe you say this, you're like, you know what? I don't like people staring at me. Again, Chuck taught me some things this week. Early church, they got baptized naked. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's weird, right? But And they got new clothes. It was part of like the, the transition from your old life to your new life. You took off your old clothes. You put on new clothes. 
I say we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, so we don't need to get baptized naked. But Jesus suffered the embarrassment of the cross, so I think you'll be fine suffering the embarrassment of baptism if you find that embarrassing. And if it's really bad and you really don't like to get in front of people, there's nothing wrong with just doing it at home or at the beach with a friend. There's certainly beauty of that public confession of your faith, but it's not a requirement. Just get in the water with a believer. Let's move to another gospel. John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciple. Jesus never actually conducts a baptism himself. We don't know why, but I think it's because, you know, people would brag that, who'd you get baptized No, Peter, I got baptized by Jesus. And so Jesus never did any baptisms. But what we see here is that the disciples are baptizing believers. And there's a difference between apostles and disciples. Apostles were a special group of 12. The disciples are all believers. And so if you're ready to be baptized, you can ask any other believer to baptize you. That's how it works. One believer baptizes a new believer. There's no indication in scripture that only a priest can do a baptism or only an ordained minister can do a baptism. Only men can do baptism. The only constant is believers baptizing new believers. After Jesus was resurrected, he gathers around his disciples and he continues to teach them this principle. Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded of you, including baptism. Now, I want to give a voice to everybody in the New Testament, so let's go to Romans 6. That's the Apostle Paul. If you have ever, that's my favorite book of the Bible. Paul spends the first six or seven chapters really just beating us up. I mean, how sinful humanity is, how depraved humanity is, what a mess we all are, how sin has ruled over all people's lives. And then he says this, but because of one sinless man, we can now have right standing before God because of grace, because of amazing grace. And so he says, because somebody must have asked the question, because we like to play games, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, We joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is why if you ask me personally to conduct your baptism, I will do it by immersion. I'm going to dunk you in the water and lift you up out of the water. Because in baptism, in this scripture, it says we identify with Christ through his death, through his burial, going beneath the water, and with the resurrection, which is symbolized by rising up out of our underwater graves into new life. And so for me, pouring and sprinkling don't best reflect being joined with Christ through his death and resurrection. By the way, history indicates that sprinkling began years after the early church formed as a matter of convenience and sometimes a necessity, so I'm not, I'm not knocking it. If you're in a cold climate it's negative 30 degrees and there's no heated water, I understand sprinkling or pouring or, or whatever they were doing. Infant baptism, dunking a baby obviously seemed cruel. So if you're going to do infant baptism, you shouldn't waterboard the poor baby. There's also some indication that some started waiting until near death because they believed that baptism truly washed away your sins. That was the point that it happened. So they would rack up sins their entire life, wait until death, 
and then get baptized, but you couldn't take an elderly person that would drown if you baptized them into cold water, and so you sprinkled them, and that's how it happened. That's some of the things that history teaches. Take it for what it's worth. And if you had friends and family that was baptized this way, I'm certainly not discounting their baptism, and I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm simply saying in my own study of Scripture that baptism by immersion best captures the intent and how I will conduct your baptism. And if I'm in a pinch and somebody's on their deathbed and they want to be baptized, I'll probably sprinkle them too. Acts chapter 2. Let's go to the book of Acts. It's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which we'll get to later this year. It's the history of the early church. And you get to chapter 2, and they're there, and the disciples are all praying, and Pentecost happens. It says the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers. That's when the disciples get the power of the Spirit. And they start speaking in tongues in this big scene, and crowds start gathering around, and it's wild and it's crazy, and so much so that everyone assumes the disciples are drunk. And so Peter stands up, he says, no, that's not it. We've got this power, and here's why. And he proceeds to preach the gospel. And it goes something like this. He says, Jesus came, and he did miracles, and he did wonders, and he did signs, and he fulfilled prophecies, all according to God's plan of redemption. And then Jesus was betrayed, he was nailed to the cross, and he died. But on the third day, God raised Jesus back to life. Death could not hold him. The veil was torn. The tomb was empty. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord and Savior. And after Peter finishes this much more eloquent sermon than I just probably gave there, he says in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. These people that heard the sermon, they were convicted. They were ready to be followers of Jesus. They were ready to put their trust in Jesus. And it says, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They don't say, you know, what should we do? And Peter doesn't say, you know, repeat this oath after me, say this little prayer. He says, turn to God, repent of your sins, and be baptized. He says, this is a promise to you, to your children, and to those who are far away, all who have been called by God. Guess who are those who are far away? It's us. We're the ones who are far away. And so that message was for us. In verse 41, it says, Those who believed what Peter said that day, which means there were some who believed and some who did not, it says they were baptized and added to the church about 3,000 in all. I was driving down the road this week. I think I pointed it out to Karen. There was a church sign. You know, people got the church signs up, and they say all kinds of crazy stuff or whatever. But this one was pretty simple. The church sign simply said, Repent and accept Jesus. You know what that means to somebody outside the church? Absolutely nothing. What do they have to repent of? Why would they repent? Why would they turn to Jesus? They already think they're a pretty good person or they're trying to be a good person. I don't need to repent. I don't need Jesus. They would not need to be baptized. It says baptism comes after our conviction. After that point, we admit that we can't save ourselves. We admit that we're never going to be good enough, that only Jesus can save us. This is why I don't personally do infant baptisms. I want baptism to be a choice for those who understand what it is that they're doing. And when I baptize people, I'll normally have them repeat after me. I'll say, I believe, and they say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. They repeat that. The Son of the living God, they repeat that. My Lord and Savior, and then we do the baptism. That's how I've done them every time I've ever done a baptism in the past. 
But after I studied this text this week, and I'm able to change and do things differently and explore as well, I'm changing my own baptizing practices. Instead of doing that repeat after me thing going forward, if somebody's baptized by me, I'm going to ask them these four questions. Can you save yourself? The answer should be no. Who has saved you? The answer should be Jesus. Can you wash away your sin? That answer should be no. Who has washed it away? That answer should be Jesus. And then I will say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, as you join Jesus in death and as his resurrection, as we rise up. And then the crowd's supposed to go wild and cheer for that person. Remember that on Saturday. All right, I don't want to leave out the Old Testament because sometimes I get accused of doing too much New Testament stuff and not enough OT. So let's go to the OG Testament. There's a guy named Naaman. He's a commander in the army. He's a big deal. He's rich, and he happens to have leprosy. It's a bad disease. It's a, it's a debilitating disease. G- goes to see the prophet Elijah. Goes with all his horses and chariots so he knows how important that he is. And he says to Elijah the prophet, what can I do to get rid of this horrible disease? And Elijah says, well, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be made clean. Easy enough. But Naaman goes away enraged and doesn't do it. He cusses the prophet for such a stupid suggestion. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm a a Christian now. I believe I got all these horses and chariots, God. What big thing do you want me to do for you? What courageous act of faith do you want me to accomplish? What if the first act of obedience God is calling you to isn't to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, but to take a dip in a pool in someone's backyard and be baptized by a friend? What if instead of God calling you to preach the gospel to the masses, the first way he wants you to share the gospel is by a public profession of your faith in baptism. There are 21 occurrences of the word baptize in the book of Acts. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time there, and I'm not going to give you all of them, but I just want to highlight a couple. In Acts 8.36, there's this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's on his way back um, to where he's from, and he bumps into Philip. And they have this little Bible study on the road. He's, He's starting to get interested in Christ. He's curious about Jesus And so Philip shares the gospel with him, and he shows him how all of Scripture points towards Jesus. And he teaches them about baptism because, verse 36, it says, They came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. The lesson here is belief comes first before our baptism. But then it's baptism. There is an urgency between belief, conviction, and baptism. Also, the other thing I want to point out is there's no special need for a special baptismal font or baptistry. There's no special holy water to be baptized in. So you can go to a pool. You can go to the ocean. You can do it in your bathtub. Just find some water and do it. Now, I'll share this with you. I've been baptized 20 times, maybe a few more than that. Not that I've baptized 20-plus people, which I have, but that I've been personally baptized 20-plus times. It's kind of weird, right? Let me explain. I grew up as a Mormon. And in that religion, which is not Christianity, you were first baptized at 8 years old. That was the age of accountability. And so you got baptized at 8. Everybody did. It's just what you did. Which you had to answer some questions, and 
tell how you're a good person to be baptized, which also meant you learned to lie at a pretty early age. <laughs> you went to this baptism, you had to wear all white clothes, and the people baptizing you had to wear all white clothes. I got purple marker all over mine because that's how you do it, and maybe that's why I'm no longer Mormon, I don't know. <laughs> Only men could conduct the baptism because women, you know, they just can't do that. It's too important for that. And you had to set a special day and put it on the calendar, and they'd bring cake and ice cream and, you know, that sort of stuff. And they were serious about baptism by immersion. When you got baptized, they had in all the churches a baptismal font. It went down into the ground, a little swimming pool in the church. And the guy would come in and baptize you if it was a parent or, or leader in the church. But they had two guys, only men could do this too, stand on the outside of the baptismal font. And they had to make sure that all of your body got beneath the water. And if your foot floated up and your toes came out, you had to do it all over again. That's not why I've been baptized 20 plus times. <laughs> and I also never wanted that job. Man, that's a lot of pressure. I mean, you get to heaven and let's say Mormonism is real and you're like, where's Karen? Oh, Brian missed that her pinky toe came up during her baptism and now she's suffering eternal damnation. Way to go, Brian. <laughs> Again, that's not why I've been baptized 20 times. My dad baptized me into the Mormon church and he got it right, I guess, on the first time and held me under and all that. The reason I was baptized 20 plus times, because as a teenager, part of the thing you would do in the Mormon church is you would go to a Mormon temple. And in that temple, as a, as a youth member, you would, part of your job was to get baptized for dead people. People who had passed away that had never been baptized. Not as Christians, but had never been baptized into the Mormon church. And people would actually submit names of relatives. That's why the Mormons are big into genealogy. They would submit names of relatives. So you would go to the temple and you would be baptized for them. And so you'd get there and you stand in the water again down in the thing. You'd have the witnesses. They'd had a TV screen back then. I don't know how they put the words on the TV screen, but the name would come up. And the guy doing the ceremony would say, I baptize you on behalf of Johann Sebastian Bach in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. True story, I went, and it was all German names on the day that I, I did the baptism. I baptized in the name of Ludwig von Beethoven and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It felt a bit like waterboarding. You did it 13, 14 times in a row. Some people did 20, and they would brag about, you know, doing 20 at one time. By the way, that's not biblical. It's not Christian. If you don't get baptized in this life, you don't get a second chance after you're dead. But to continue my story, I accepted Christ in 2005. I became a Christian, a believer. But after 20-plus baptisms in my life, I kind of thought that one of those had to be good. Then I read this, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, believers. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So I think it's interesting. And he said, and then what were you baptized then? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And it says this, on hearing this, they were baptized again, because they've already been baptized before, in the name of the Lord Jesus. These folks had been previously baptized, but they had no idea why. And upon realizing this, they then made the choice, with Paul's blessing, to be baptized into the name of Jesus. 
your baptism was not into Christ, but a religion, if you got baptized because everyone else was doing it, if your parents made the choice for you, I want to encourage you to get baptized. Not re-baptized, but baptized by choice in Christ for the very first time. So let me finish you my story. Kennedy made the decision at age 10 or 11, my oldest, to be baptized. And she asked her dad, which I was very honored, to do her baptism. But the night before, I had this overwhelming conviction that I needed to be baptized for real into Christ. And so I told my wife, Karen, we went outside. She opened the Bible up and found some verses she could use. We got into the pool. Kids were young, but we had the kids standing around. We had our dogs standing around, probably jumping in the pool. And Karen baptized me. And I'm glad it was Karen because she deserved that honor because she had a lot to do with bringing me to Christ. Got one more. Acts chapter 22. Paul again is there and he's sharing his conversion story. That's what us believers like to do. We like what I just did, share our stories of conversion. And so Paul is sharing his conversion story. He says, you know, I was a Jew and I was zealous for the law. I used to persecute those Christians. And I saw a light, and I was blinded. Eventually, Ananias shows up, and he heals me. I was blind, but now I see. And then Paul continues, verse 14, Then Ananias told me, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. But you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. In verse 16, he says, What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling upon the name of the Lord. What are you waiting for? Any procrastinators in the room? I bet every single person in this room has something that you know you need to do, but you keep putting it off. You've had the conviction, but you've not yet taken any action. We do this with house projects all the time, right? We don't do that house project. We put it off. We put it off. Finally, we fix it up as we're selling the house so that somebody else can enjoy the repairs. Or we do it with our health, health projects. We know we need to eat better. We know we need to exercise, but we'll get to that eventually. And often what we do is we allow our intentions to do something to get us off the hook from actually doing it. We're not exercising, but because we're planning on it, we're okay. We don't save any money, but, but we're going to do that at some point in our life, so we're good. We'll laugh at those people who call themselves Christians and never read their Bibles we don't read it either, but we're planning on it someday, which makes us more holy than them. Christianity is not a faith of procrastinations. Our convictions should always lead to actions. And so for somebody tonight, what are you waiting for? And maybe you say, you know what, I'm just not ready to make that lifelong commitment to Jesus. And if that's you, that's okay. It took me a long time and a very difficult journey to come to faith. It wasn't easy. It was years of study and trials and letting go of my religion and finally accepting God's grace. So if you're, you're thinking about following Jesus, don't rush into it. I, I want to be really clear. You ought to take that decision to be a follower of Christ, not lightly, but pretty seriously. Because Jesus is going to ask you to do some hard stuff in your life. He's going to say things like, love your neighbor. If you got my neighbor, you know how hard that is. <laughs> He's going to ask you to be a part of a church. They're the worst neighbors in the world. He's going to ask you to change how you spend your time, change who you spend your time with. He's going to ask you to extend the grace you've received to others. 
Luke 14, verse 27 says, If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Don't begin, don't decide to be a disciple until you've counted up the costs. Here, to carry your own cross literally means to be a dead man walking. And so to carry your cross means you're, you're letting go of your old life. You're letting go of your old ways. You're letting go of selfish ambitions. You're letting go of being comfortable all the time. So don't take that decision lightly. Don't underestimate the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. It's going to be a burden on your time. It's going to be a burden on your energy and your resources. There's going to be a lot of patience that's going to be required of you. And so Jesus never lied to us about becoming disciples. He doesn't say, come to me, all who want to come to me, and it'll be easy. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And he says that because he knows as disciples, it's going to be hard. We're going to be worn out. We're going to be weary. We're going to be burdened. So don't take your decision to follow Jesus lightly. Don't rush into it. But also, don't take forever. Because if you take too long, there won't be a forever. So tonight, if you've made that decision, though, and you're like, I believe in Jesus. I want to be a follower. I'm putting my hope in him. I know I have no chance without the blood of Christ, then I will ask you that question. What are you waiting for? Paul says, get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Or if that's too complex for you, in the words of the great theologian Beyonce, because if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Baptism is the wedding ring of Christianity. If you want a real simple illustration as to what this is and boil it down, baptism is the wedding ring of Christianity. Just like in a marriage, a ring's not going to make you fall in love with somebody. A ring's not going to make the marriage any easier. The ring's not going to help you sacrifice more. The ring's not going to bring intimacy into the relationship, but the ring is a symbol. It's a symbol to you, to your spouse, to everyone you come in contact with, that on one very special day you made a commitment to one person and that you now belong to that person. It's the most beautiful picture I can think of of baptism. So there I go, being a preacher, when all I needed to say was <laughs> baptism. God said do it, so do it. And I want you to know baptism isn't something we have to do. It's something we get to do. Jesus was beaten and stripped so we could be baptized. Jesus carried a cross so that I could be baptized. Jesus bled and died so that you could be baptized. Jesus' father turned away for the first time in eternity so that we all could be baptized. So I want to end tonight. I'm going to have the band come back up, and I just want to end with a couple of songs and an opportunity for us to respond. And so if you're here tonight and you've been baptized, take this time as we sing to maybe think back to your own baptism, to that commitment you made that day, to the people who are around you, the person who conducted your baptism, the family and friends who were there. If you're here in the room and you've been responsible for somebody else being baptized, you shared the gospel with them or you invited them to church and, and through that, they were baptized, and take this time just reflecting upon that and, and giving thanks to God for allowing you to be that broken vessel to share the gospel. Maybe as we sing tonight, there are some here that you need to make that decision to follow Jesus. Don't take it lightly. Don't make that decision in a moment.
but think about it. If you want to make that decision tonight, maybe that's your time. And maybe there's some here tonight that you need to make that decision to stop procrastinating. And you say, God said to do it, so it's time to do it.